beliefs are like fashion. We change them with the seasons. But one belief remains stubbornly defiant. A belief that spans the ages. A belief that goes back to the Garden of Eden. And it is this, that the best way to live is to do our own thing, to please ourselves. Sometimes you will hear the claim, well, you can't please everybody, so you might just as well please yourself. And this philosophy drives and animates all we do. It is a driving force behind the beliefs that we hold, the practices in which we are involved, that we must do our own thing. We must please ourselves. This is fundamentally the formula of life. What the clothes we wear, the places we frequent, the shows we watch, the music we listen to, the games we play online, all of this, all that we do, is often driven by this understanding we must do our own thing, we must please ourselves. The writer of Hebrews challenges this assumption. It challenges this well-established formula for life that we are to do our own thing, that we are to please ourselves. And it gives us another way. We see this particularly in the closing chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13. After the writer has dealt with the superiority of Christ over angels, over Joshua and Moses and the Levitical priesthood, from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 18, he calls them to endurance and to faith in chapters 10 and 11. But in this chapter, chapter 13, he brings together a series of exhortations as we saw the last time, beginning in chapter 13, 1 to 6, where he tells them to continue to exhibit Christian love, to entertain and be generous or kind to strangers, hospitable to strangers, to remember those who are in prison, to honor marriage, and to live without covetousness. All of these are exhortations that he's giving before he concludes. The passage before us, verses 7 and following, contains additional exhortations. Exhortations which are not so much as personal as we saw in verses 1 to 6, but exhortations which are communal. That is, the exhortations are given to the life of the community. How to live in community. And these commands, these exhortations, we saw, for example, as we read in verse 7, that they are to remember their leaders. They are to imitate their conduct. And the notion there is that these leaders have already died. That remember them and follow their conduct. He reminds them that Jesus Christ is unchanging in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And because our Lord Jesus Christ is unchanging, they too ought to be unchanging in their commitment to biblical truths. So they must not be carried away in verse 9 with strange doctrines. He tells them further that they must go outside the camp. He reminds them that they are to pray for the apostles or, the, or himself and those in his community. He tells them that they are to bring a sacrifice of praise and to do good. All of these are commandments that are given. But if we are to understand these commandments, we must read them from the perspective of pleasing God. These are myriad, many, numerous exhortations about living out the Christian life. But the undergirding principle, the basic foundational principle that is laid out for them is that they are to please God. In other words, these commandments are specific ways in which they are to please God. You will find, as I mentioned some time ago, that in chapter 12, 28, the writer calls them to please God. If I may bring you back there, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us be grateful, by which we may serve God acceptably. And this word acceptably is the word pleasingly. That we may serve God, let us have grace, let us be grateful that we may serve God acceptably or pleasingly with reverence and godly fear. If you go down to chapter 20, or chapter verse 20, you will find in verse 21, he says now, May the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work, working in you to do his will, working in you what is well pleasing in his sight. So this entire chapter 13 is bracketed by doing what is pleasing to God. And you will find in verse 16, he tells them that they are to praise, they are to bring a sacrifice of praise, and then he says in verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And what am I arguing? I'm arguing that then the, the central idea in a chapter that seems to be random, a random staccato giving of commandments, is a call to please God. The pleasing God brackets, ties, draws the entire chapter, chapter 13, together. And that is the writer's, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, answer to a philosophy that says we are to do our own thing, we are to please self. Eucharisto, we are to please the Lord. Now, it is beyond our ability to develop all of the ways in which we are to please God in this section from verse 7 all the way to verse 21. What I want us to do, however, is much more modest. I want us to pull out from the text to drill down upon a few ways, but significant ways, in which the author tells his readers and, and thus tells us that we are to please God. First then, pleasing God, which is then the goal of Christian living, involves a determination on the part of believers to bear the sufferings of Christ. We see this. This is where the dominant thought in verses 10 to 14, chapter 13, verse 10 to 14. And the writer 
would tell them that one of the significant ways in which they are to please God is by bearing the sufferings of Christ. How does he come to this point? Well, after the injunction against following strange doctrines and telling them that their heart is established by grace and not about regulations about food, he says, we have an altar. And that takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals were slain on the altar. He says, we have an altar. But he's not referring to a physical altar. He's referring by association to the sacrifice on the altar. And the, and the altar that we have then literally refers to Jesus Christ. He is our sacrifice. And he goes on to say that those who serve in the tabernacle, that is those who are attached to the old system, to the mosaic era, and to the old sacrificial system under Moses, do not partake of the altar. That is, they do not partake of the benefits of Christ. They do not partake of his full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin. In other words, those who still were in Judaism, following the old covenant, they did not enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. He says, we have an altar, but those who are under the Mosaic system, those who are in Judaism, do not know the benefit of Christ's sacrifice. Having used in the language of sacrifice, which is the pointing then back to the Old Testament and to the sacrificial system, he draws another idea from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he observes that on the Day of Atonement, that special day in the year, when the priests offered sacrifices for sin, he says that the bodies of the sin offerings, the bodies of the animals that were killed in order for the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament, those animals, their bodies were taken outside the camp and they were burned outside the camp. Now, he views this action of the high priest to burn the sacrifice of sin outside of the camp as a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and his death outside the gate of Jerusalem. And so in verse 12 he says, Therefore, Jesus... Also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Our Lord Jesus, he says, suffered outside the gate. That our Lord Jesus Christ died a violent and a bloody death in order to induct us into the sphere of the holy, in order that we may be separated unto God and be viewed by God as his holy people. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. He was considered to be a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer, one who did not deserve to be a part of the community of God, of the people of Israel. He didn't deserve to be a part of polite society. So when Jesus Christ was crucified, he was taken outside of Jerusalem and crucified on the hill of Golgotha. And the writer is saying the, the location of Christ's death, not only the, the manner in which he died, that is crucifixion, the most heinous way of, die, of death. It was heinous to the Romans because no Roman citizen was permitted to die by crucifixion. It was so horrible. For the Jews, they believed that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. So our Lord's death was the worst possible death, whether viewed from the perspective of the Romans or of the Jews. 
But the writer signals that our Lord's death was not only awful and horrible because of the means by which he died, crucifixion, but where he died. He suffered outside the gate. That our Lord Jesus Christ was ultimately rejected. Rejected by his own. He was seen as the ultimate sinner who did not deserve to be among the people of God but deserved to die among those who were seen as heretics and outsiders. He died then in disgrace. The cross must be understood ultimately as a disgrace. He was disgraced, humiliated, treated ultimately with shame and contempt. And this reality of Christ dying outside the camp of Israel, outside the city gate, then establishes something that believers are to imitate. For he says, here's an implication of Christ's death outside the gate. In verse 13 he says, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Just as Jesus suffered disgrace by being excommunicated from the assembly of God's people. Just as he was viewed as an outsider, one who was ashamed, the one who was rejected, so we are to go outside the camp, outside the assembly, and in a sense, join ourselves. What is he asking us to do? He's asking believers to bear the shame of Christ, the stigma of Christ. To identify with Christ the crucified, even though the world views him as an embarrassment, as a shame. We are to bear the insult and the indignity that comes with association with Jesus Christ. And he gives them the reason why they should do that in verse 14. For he says, for we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. These believers were seeking to abandon the Christian faith. They were being persecuted. And Judaism, there was protection for Judaism as a religion in the first century. So many wanted to go back to Judaism in order to escape persecution. And he says, really, true safety is not found in Judaism. It's not found in this world. For here in this world, we have no continuing city. We have no permanent, lasting home. But we seek one which is to come. And then thus, in in saying this to them, the reason you are to identify with Christ and bear his shame, it is because you are pilgrims. He reprises this theme of pilgrimage, which we have seen in chapter 11 and chapter 4. He says, you are are therefore strangers and aliens. You are on a journey, and you're, you're journeying to a permanent city, a city with foundation, whose maker and builder is God. And because of that, you are not to be ashamed to identify with Christ because you are going to a permanent home. You see, this world is passing away in the language of John. And because the world is passing away, they should bear the shame that associates with Christ because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom is a permanent kingdom. In a sense then, he's encouraging them to Adopt the same posture to life and to suffering as Abraham did and his descendants. In chapter 11, 9 to 10, we are told by faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundation, 
whose founder and maker is God. Abraham therefore endured hardship, identified with the cause of God in an alien world because he was looking for a permanent city. And this is true not only of Abraham, but of his descendants who were cut from the same cloth. So the writer in chapter 11 of Hebrews and verse 13 and to 16 continues. He says, these, referring to the patriarchs, the descendants of Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What are we saying? We are saying, in effect, that the call of the Christian is to please God. One of the ways we do so an important way in which we do so it is to identify with Jesus Christ who was held up for mockery, ridicule, and shame in his death. And the reason we are to do that, we to identify with Christ who was cast out and viewed as an embarrassment and a shame, it is because we are pilgrims in hot pursuit, seeking, is avid, and passionately seeking for a heavenly dwelling place. But the writer continues in verse 15 and 16 to tell us that we please God not only by bearing the reproach, the suffering, the shame of Christ, but he says that pleasing God secondly involves offering a sacrifice to God. In, involve offering God-pleasing sacrifice to, sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. See, he says, therefore, in verses 15 and 16, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You notice the connection here between sacrifices and pleasing God. And so what we're arguing is a second way in which we please God is by giving to him pleasing sacrifices. Not only bearing the reproach of Christ, but pleasing him by giving him sacrifices. We cannot say for sure why the writer mentions that pleasing God is by way of sacrifices. But what we do understand is it appears that in the first century, these believers, these Christians, one of the things that attracted them to the old way, Judaism, was the sacrificial system, the solemn sacrifices of the Old Testament, which were practiced. And they wanted to go back. And the writer has pointed out on many occasions, particularly in chapters 9 and 10 of this book, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come and has offered one sacrifice for sins. That in the Old Testament, year after year, the priest would bring a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, bring blood into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He did this every year, but the blood of animals could not totally 
and finally deal with our sins. So Jesus Christ has come as high priest of the greater tabernacle, not an earthly physical tabernacle, but of the heavenly tabernacle. And the writer stresses in chapter 9 that by one offering, by one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed us. The Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from our sins. It is the effectiveness of his work. Over and over he stresses that Jesus Christ offered himself once to God as a sacrifice. There's only one Calvary. Only once Christ suffered on the cross. And that one suffering was more effective than all the centuries of sacrificing for sins performed by the high priest in Israel. But even though Christ offered one sacrifice for sins, and believers now no longer need to bring blood sacrifices to atone for, to, to, to propitiate God, to remove God's anger. The writer of Hebrew tells them, yes, Christ has offered one sacrifice, and that means we don't have to offer sacrifices for our sins. But he also goes on to show them that there are other sacrifices that we can give to God apart from atoning sacrifices, blood sacrifices. And so he lists two kinds of sacrifices that are to be practiced today by Christians. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. These are believers who are on their way to heaven, to this heavenly Jerusalem. He says then in verse 15, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice. But what sacrifice? The sacrifice of praise. The writer makes, makes it clear that while we do not offer the Old Testament sacrifices, blood sacrifice or sin, we have a sacrifice that God delights in, that God receives. It is a sacrifice of praise. What is he talking about? Well, he amplifies that by saying the fruit of your lips. So he's making it clear that the sacrifice that we bring to God is first of all verbal. We call that worship. We, we must understand that when on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or a Wednesday midweek Bible study, when we attend worship, we aren't there just to mark time. We aren't there merely to go through a ritual. We are bringing in our singing, in our reading of the scriptures, in our praying, we are bringing to God a sacrifice that he finds acceptably and pleasing. Worship them, praising God. With our lips, in the context of congregational worship, is viewed by God as a sacrifice that he accepts, that he delights in. We are bringing praise to his name, whether in the worship or in our witness to the world. That offering of praise to him, of thanksgiving to him, is pleasing. It's a pleasing sacrifice. And this sacrifice of praise, he says, should be offered to God continually. Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Why? Why is it to be continual? Because the blessings that we receive from God are abiding, ongoing blessings. The, the work of Christ on the cross for our sins, our justification, our forgiveness of sins, our adoption into the family of God, all of the blessings that Jesus Christ accomplished for us, they continue. 
Moreover, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the greatest blessing that we may possess, he continues, because we are told Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because we have received an abiding, continuing blessings, we are to be continually bringing a sacrifice of praise to God. The only time we can stop praising God is when the blessings of God have failed. But they never fail. Jesus Christ and his salvation remains forever a guarantee to us. So we are to bring a sacrifice of praise continually to him. Secondly, the sacrifice of praise we bring, not only ought it to be continual, but it is to be offered to God through Christ. You may not notice, but in the beginning of verse 15, he says emphatically, through him, therefore, by him or through him, referring to Jesus Christ. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. We need to understand that we can give to God nothing that he finds acceptable, acceptable or pleasing unless it is offered to him in the name of, through the merits of Jesus Christ. All worship, all sacrifices, if, if God is to accept what we bring, we must do so on the basis of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the one who makes us acceptable to God. And our offerings, therefore, acceptable to him. It is therefore as we draw near in union with Christ, depending upon his merit, that is upon his person as a son of God and as Lord, it is as we draw near to him based upon the merits of his work on the cross. In other words, when we come to God, we ought to say, Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. That is, we are depending upon Jesus Christ and what he has done. And this praise we give to you, we give it to you because of Christ, but we give it to you through him who has made us acceptable. And and in fact, in chapter 9, the writer tells us that our acceptance is based on Jesus Christ. For he says in chapter 9, verse 14, one of the favorite verses in this this book of, of Hebrews, he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve, latrio, to serve. It's a religious term. It's a term of the priests who serve in the, in, the, in the temple, in the tabernacle. He says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our consciences from dead works so that we might serve. We may bring spiritual offerings to God, to the living God. And so, how do we Please God, we please him by giving him worship. Worship is an obligation, but it is seen by God as a sacrifice well-pleasing. Then the writer goes on, and it's interesting he goes on, because he adds in verse 16, but do not forget to do good. It might have been that some would have thought, my offering of God, to God as a sacrifice is to praise him. In worship, and that is the end of my obligation to him. So the writer goes on and he says, But do not forget to do good and to share. What is he saying? That if we are to bring our sacrifices to God, if we are to please him, not only must we please him with our lips, but we must please him with our lives. And we must please him in worship, we must please him by being generous, by giving, by sharing. By doing good works. So when we give to missions, when we give to help the poor, we must understand that these are not just to be seen as benign acts of generosity, 
but this is part and parcel of our whole soul commitment to God. That worshiping of God involves verbal praise, but practically doing good for the sake of Christ. You see, the writer tells us here that this sharing and doing good with such sacrifices like these, he says, God is well pleased. And in a sense, then, the writer of Hebrews echoes the language of Paul who reminded us that giving financially for the sake of the gospel is seen by God as an acceptable sacrifice. So writing to the Philippians, the apostle Paul says, I have received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet-smelling sacrifice, acceptably and well-pleasing to God. In sum then, he says, do not forget such sacrifices, doing good, being generous. You must worship God and you must praise him, but you must also be generous to others around you. For that shows a life lived not for self, but for God. And with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. But We come to the significant verse in verse 20 and then in verse 21. Where the apostle now draws to a conclusion. Here is a benediction, a prayer. He has just told them in verse 18 to pray for them, for himself and for his companions. But now in verse 20, he is going to pray for them. He says, pray for us. But now he says in verse 20, I'm going to pray for you. And look at the prayer. It's significant because it, it answers one central question. How is it that believers are able to please God. If, if, the, if the main thesis of this chapter is that we are to please God by a host of activities involved, involving in those activities is drawing near to Christ, separating ourselves to him, bearing his shame, and bringing sacrifices of worship and good deeds to him. The question is how do we do it? Well, this verse or these two verses answer the question. The Apostle Paul sums up with a prayer. Significant. He says, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's the play? What's the point? The point is this. Though the goal of Christian living is pleasing to God, or to live pleasing to God, the Christian can only please God by depending upon the powerful work of God in us. That's the main idea here. He begins with prayer to God. And he depicts God as a source of peace. Not subjective peace, inward sense of well-being. But, but reconciliation. God is the God of peace. The one who reconciles us to himself through the blood of Christ. So the first act of God that he mentioned is peace. God achieves reconciliation. God is the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for his people, that we may be brought into harmony and fellowship with him. But secondly, he says that God is a source not only of reconciliation or peace, but God is a source of resurrection. So he continues in verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. This term, to bring up, means to lead out. So he brings praise to God. He says, God is a God of peace. 
But God is a God of resurrection. He brought up or he led out from the realm of death, Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful language used here. He raised him from the dead. And he goes on to describe the one whom God raised from the dead as the great shepherd of the sheep. This language is evocative, the language of shepherd. Because if you read the Old Testament, even in a cursory fashion, you're going to find that there is one shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament. It is God. And that passage, of course, we have in Psalm 23, tells us the Lord is my shepherd. But here in, in, in this book of Hebrews, the writer says, God has led out from death the great shepherd of the sheep. It means that Jesus Christ is to be identified with the God of the Old Testament, the shepherd of Israel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ in John 10 is described as the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus is described as the chief shepherd. And we see Peter saying something like this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So Jesus Christ is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. The writer emphasizes that Christ is the great shepherd. Why? Because he is the one who leads us. He's the one who guides us to our eternal home. He's the one who provides for his flock, those who are believers. He's the one who protects them like a shepherd. But he's a great shepherd because he's a risen shepherd. He's a living shepherd. He's the one who is seated at the right hand of God in glory. So he's a great shepherd. We have a shepherd. We are not orphans. We are not left on our our own in this world, even though it may appear that you are on your own. It's just up to you. He says, God has raised up from death Christ, the great shepherd. The one who is a shepherd and bishop of your soul. The one who guides you, provides for you, and protects you against all and sundry enemies. And he says, God raised him up by the blood of everlasting covenant. There he means that it is because our Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood and brought into effect the new covenant that you and I as believers are part of, that God raised him from the dead because it signifies the resurrection of Christ from the death signified he had done the will of God. He had satisfied the demands of God. Having told them then that this God to whom he prays, is the God of peace who raised Jesus Christ, the great shepherd from the dead. He comes to his petition. What is he asking God for? Very rapidly, he prays to God. And he says in verse 20, he prays that God may make you complete. The word there is equip. In fact, it means to restore, to fix that was broken. But he says, "May, may God make you complete. May God equip you with everything good for doing his will. May God equip you. This language of equipping is used of God in chapter 11 verse 3 who equipped the world. This world was made and equipped, fashioned by God. It's used of God equipping the Lord Jesus Christ with a physical body in, John, in Hebrews 10 verse 5. But now he says, may God, the the same God who 
is a God of peace and the same God who raised Jesus. May this powerful God, may he equip you. May he mend you. May he restore what is broken in you and equip you, give you all the graces you need that you may do the will of God. And he amplifies this equipping work of God. He says, furthermore, May this God be working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. He's praying for them. He's called them. He says, I want you to live pleasing to God. That's your marching order. That's your mandate to please your heavenly father. But the way you do it is by God equipping you and working in you what is pleasing to him. In fact, Paul says the same thing. For in Philippians 2 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Apostle Paul did not believe that believers could please God on their own. They need the working of God in their lives. They need the equipping power of God to make them please God. The Puritan theologian, William Ames, wrote a marvelous work on systematic theology in the 17th century. And William Ames began this systematic treatment of theology called the marrow of theology with these words. He says that theology is the doctrine of living unto God. In other words, all of the doctrine of Scripture that we study is to teach us to live unto God. And by that he means to live pleasing unto God. You and I must understand that the Christian life, if you boil it down in essence to this... It is to please God. And you and I must make it then our primary mandate and goal in life to please God. The world says, please yourself and you will be happy. But the Bible says, please God and you will be happy. Because only in doing the will of God, in pleasing God, that we know true happiness and therefore, all of our thinking and our planning and our striving, all of this must be to one end, that God is pleased. What governs your behavior, what governs your relationship with one another at home or at work or at school is pleasing God. The reason you want to be the best employee you can be is because you wish to please God. The reason you should avoid things that are sinful and things that are hateful inside of God is because they displease God. Fundamentally, the Christian life is a movement away from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. That which makes you different from one another is not because you have a bumper sticker on your car or a fish saying you are a Christian. What makes you different from the world is that you are being driven by the desire to please you. I want you to understand that this notion of pleasing God is at the heart of biblical theology. In John 8, we hear the words regarding Jesus Christ, who says this in John 8, 
I always do that which pleases him. That which drove Jesus Christ on was always to please his father. The apostle Paul was driven by this same desire to please his father. So he could say in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, we make it our aim to be found pleasing to him. And writing to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, the apostle Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. What I'm arguing is that when you read the scriptures, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the apostle Paul, and you look at the early church, they were consumed by the overwhelming desire to be found pleasing to God. And you and I must be driven by this same thing, the animus, that, which, the, 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 that central driving passion of our hearts, is that God may be pleased with us. You need to know that pleasing God then involves doing all of God's will. Some of it is listed here. But you also need to recognize that before you and I can please God, we must be born again. We must be transformed. It is Paul in Romans chapter 8 who says that those who are in the flesh, those governed then by sinful impulses, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is, if you are an unbeliever, if you have not committed to Jesus Christ, if you have not received the new birth, if your hearts have not been changed, you cannot please God. And so if you have a desire today, if you want to please God, you must go back to the cross. You must look to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do, do you believe that God is angry with the wicked day and night? Do you believe that unless you are delivered, you shall be condemned? But do you also believe that God has provided a remedy for our sins and a deliverance in Jesus Christ, who is Lord, who died and rose again? Well, if your faith is in Christ, if your faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, then you are saved. And it's only by, as the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about, it is by abiding in Christ. It talks about Coming to Christ, receiving Christ and resting on Christ. It is as you receive Christ and rest on Christ that you are saved. And by being saved, you can now begin a life pleasing to God. And one of the ways you live pleasing to God is by saying that I will not be ashamed to identify with Christ. It is always more attractive to be in the in crowd, to be received and to be accepted. Because when you are in the in crowd, these are seen as winners. These are the movers and shakers. They are fun to be around. It's always difficult to be on the outside, to be seen as an outcast. But you must, if you are to please God, be committed to standing for Christ and bearing his shame, to be ridiculed and to be persecuted by the world. Why? Because you are going to glory. You're going to be with Christ. And if you suffer with him here, you will reign with him there. You please God by doing his will, by, be, by bearing Christ's reproach, that you go outside the camp, that you break free from all attachments and attach yourself to Jesus Christ, the crucified. You go outside the camp. You're to please God by doing his will, by celebrating him in worship. 
This is your task, this is your mandate to bring a, a sacrifice of praise to God. That when you sing these hymns, you sing them unto the God. This is my act of worship to you because of who you are and what you have done. And by being generous, sharing with what God has given you. But you must know that if you are to please God in all of these myriad of activities, you must fix your eyes upon Jesus and you must depend upon the resurrection power of God. It is in chapter 11 of this book and verse 6 we are told, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you are to please God, you must look to Jesus Christ. He has made a new and living way for us, which he consecrated through the veil that is his flesh. He is the, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this Christ, if you look to him and depend upon him, will give you the grace to please God. But you must look to God. You must look to God for resurrection power. You must ask God for the same power, the same resurrection power that brought Jesus from the dead to be at work in you. You must go to God and say, Lord, build in me. Equip me, give me spiritual vitality, spiritual strength that I may live pleasing. You see, the only way you can be saved is by faith in God. But the only way you can live the Christian life is by faith in the same power of God that saves you. One of the mistakes we make in this life is that we believe that we are saved by faith and we live by our good works. But that is wrong. We are saved by faith. And we live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Ask God to unleash his resurrection power in your heart and life. And equip you with everything you need to do his will. And he will do so for Christ's sake. Amen. Pray with me, my friends. Oh God, we need you. And we come as a people confessing afresh that too often we make it our duty to please ourselves. Our tastes and our choices, our viewpoints are often governed by the things that please us. And so, Lord, we would renounce self today. We ask that you would give us the desire and the will and the power to please you. We think of Augustine, who says, command what you will and give what you command. You have commanded us to be pleasing to you, but Lord, we cannot do that on our own. And so we ask, as you have commanded us to be pleasing, give what you command, give us the power to do so. And so we rest upon you. We ask, Lord, that as we face this world, grant that in all our choices, we must seek first to please you. Give us the grace, give us the strength, give us the desire. We ask all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.